Chapter One of the Naval Officer, or Scenes in the Life and Adventures of Frank Mildmay. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Paul Clip. The Naval Officer, or Scenes in the Life and Adventures of Frank Mildmay, by Frederick Marriott. Chapter One. These are the errors, and these are the fruits, of misspending our prime youth at the schools and universities as we do, either in learning mere words, or such things chiefly as were better unlearned. Milton. My father was a gentleman, and a man of considerable property. In my infancy and childhood I was weak and sickly, but the favorite of my parents beyond all my brothers and sisters, because they saw that my mind was far superior to my sickly frame, and feared they should never raise me to manhood. Contrary, however, to their expectations, I surmounted all these untoward appearances, and attracted much notice from my liveliness, quickness of repartee, and impudence, qualities which have been of much use to me through life. I can remember that I was both a coward and a boaster, but I have frequently remarked that the quality which we call cowardice in a child is no more than implying a greater sense of danger, and consequently a superior intellect. We are all naturally cowards, Education and observation teach us to discriminate between real and apparent danger, pride teaches the concealment of fear, and habit renders us indifferent to that from which we have often escaped with impunity. It is related of the great Frederick that he misbehaved the first time he went into action, and it is certain that a novice in such a situation can no more command all his resources than a boy when first bound apprentice to a shoemaker can make a pair of shoes. We must learn our trade whether it be to stand steady before the enemy, or to stitch a boot. Practice alone can make a Hobie or a Wellington. I pass on to my school days, when the most lasting impressions are made. The foundation of my moral and religious instruction had been laid with care by my excellent parents, but alas, from the time I quitted the paternal roof not one stone was added to the building, and even the traces of what existed were nearly obliterated by the deluge of vice which threatened soon to overwhelm me. Sometimes, indeed, I feebly but ineffectually endeavored to stem the torrent. At others, I suffered myself to be borne along with all its fatal rapidity. I was frank, generous, quick, and mischievous, and I must admit that a large portion of what sailors call devil was openly displayed, and a much larger portion latently deposited in my brain and bosom. My ruling passion, even in this early stage of life, was pride. Lucifer himself, if he was ever seven years old, had not more. If I have gained a fair name in the service, if I have led instead of followed, it may be ascribed to this my ruling passion. The world has often given me credit for better feelings as the source of action, but I am not writing to conceal, and the truth must be told. I was sent to school to learn Latin and Greek, which there are various ways of teaching. Some tutors attempt the Saviter in modo. My schoolmaster preferred the and, as the boatswain said, by the instigation of a large knotted stick, he drove knowledge into our skulls as a caulker drives oakum into the seams of a ship. Under such tuition we made astonishing progress, and whatever my less desirable acquirements may have been, my father had no cause to complain of my deficiency in classic lore. Superior in capacity to most of my schoolfellows, I seldom took the pains to learn my lessons previous to going up with my class. The master's blessing, as we call it, did occasionally descend on my devoted head. But that was a bagatella. I was too proud not to keep pace with my equals, and too idle to do more. 
had my schoolmaster being a single man my stay under his care might have been prolonged to my advantage but unfortunately both for him and for me he had a helpmate and her peculiarly unfortunate disposition was the means of corrupting those morals over which it was her duty to have watched with the most assiduous care her ruling passions were suspicion and avarice written in legible characters in her piercing eyes and sharp pointed nose she never supposed us capable of telling the truth so we very naturally never gave ourselves the trouble to cultivate a useless virtue and seldom resorted to it unless it answered our purpose better than a lie the propensity of mrs higginbottom converted our candour and honesty into deceit and fraud never believed we cared little about the accuracy of our assertions half starved through her meanness and parsimony we were little scrupulous as to the ways and means provided we could satisfy our hunger and thus we soon became as great adepts in the elegant accomplishments of lying and thieving under her tuition as we did in greek and latin under that of her husband a large orchard fields garden and poultry-yard attached to the establishment were under the care and superintendence of the mistress who usually selected one of the boys as her prime minister and confidential adviser this boy for whose education his parents were paying some sixty or eighty pounds per annum was permitted to pass his time in gathering up the windfalls in watching the hens and bringing in their eggs when their cackling throats had announced their safe accoutrement looking after the broods of young ducks and chickens at hoc genus omne in short doing the duty of what is usually termed the odd man in the farmyard how far the parents would have been satisfied with this arrangement i leave my readers to guess but to us who preferred the manual to mental exertion exercise to restraint and any description of cultivation to that of cultivating the mind it suited extremely well and accordingly no place in the gift of government was ever the object of such solicitude and intrigue as was to us schoolboys the situation of collector and trustee of the eggs and apples i had the good fortune to be early selected for this important post and the misfortune to lose it soon after owing to the cunning and envy of my schoolfellows and the suspicion of my employers on my first coming into office i had formed the most sincere resolutions of honesty and vigilance but what are good resolutions when discouraged on the one hand by the revilings of suspicion and assailed on the other by the cravings of appetite my morning's collection was extracted from me to the very last nut and the greedy eyes of my mistress seemed to inquire for more suspected when innocent i became guilty out of revenge was detected and dismissed a successor was appointed to whom i surrendered all my offices of trust and having perfect leisure i made it my sole business to supplant him it was an axiom in mathematics with me at that time though not found in euclid that wherever i could enter my head my whole body might follow as a practical illustration of this proposition i applied my head to the arched hole of the hen-house door and by scraping away a little dirt contrived to gain admittance and very speedily transferred all the eggs to my own chest when the new purveyor arrived he found nothing but a beggarly account of empty boxes and his perambulations in the orchard and garden for the same reason were equally fruitless the pilferings of the orchard and garden i confiscated as droits but when i had collected a sufficient number of eggs to furnish a nest i gave information of my pretended discovery to my mistress who thinking she had not changed for the better dismissed my successor and received me into favour again i was like many greater men immediately reinstated in office when it was discovered that they could not do without me i once more became chancellor of the hen-roost and ranger of the orchard with greater power than i had possessed before my disgrace 
Had my mistress looked half as much in my face as she did into my hatful of eggs, she would have read my guilt, for at that unsophisticated age I could blush, a habit long since discarded in the course of my professional duties. In order to preserve my credit and my situation, I no longer contented myself with windfalls, but assisted nature in her labors, and greatly lightened the burden of many a loaded fruit tree. By these means, I not only gratified the avarice of my mistress at her own expense, but also laid by a store for my own use. On my restoration to office, I had an ample fund in my exchequer to answer all present demands, and by a provident and industrious anticipation, was enabled to lull the suspicions of my employers, and to bid defiance to the opposition. It will readily be supposed that a lad of my acuteness did not omit any technical management for the purpose of disguise. The fruits which I presented were generally soiled with dirt at the ends of the stalks, in such a manner as to give them all the appearance of fella de se, i.e., fell of itself. Thus, in the course of a few months, did I become an adept of vice, from the mismanagement of those into whose hands I was entrusted to be strengthened in religion and virtue. Fortunately for me, as far as my education was concerned, I did not long continue to hold this honorable and lucrative employment. One of those unhappy beings called an usher peeped into my chest, and by way of acquiring popularity with the mistress and scholars, forthwith denounced me to the higher powers. The proofs of my peculation were too glaring, and the amount too serious to be passed over. I was tried, convicted, condemned, sentenced, flogged, and dismissed in the course of half an hour and such was the degree of turpitude attached to me on this occasion that I was rendered forever incapable of serving in that or any other employment connected with a garden or farm. I was placed at the bottom of the list, and declared to be the worst boy in the school. This in many points of view was too true, but there was one boy who bade fair to rival me on the score of delinquency. This was Tom Crawford, who from that day became my most intimate friend. Tom was a fine-spirited fellow, up to everything, loved mischief, though not vicious, and was ready to support me in everything through thick and thin, and truly I found him sufficient employment. I threw off all disguised, laughed at any suggestion of reform, which I considered as not only useless, but certain of subjecting me to ridicule and contempt among my associates. I therefore adopted the motto of some great man, to be rather than to seem to be. I led in every danger, declared war against any drivelers and half-measures, stole everything that was eatable from garden, orchard, or hen-house, knowing full well that whether I did so or not, I should be equally suspected. Thenceforward all fruit missed, all arrows shot into pigs, all stones thrown into windows, and all mud splattered over clean linen hung out to dry, were traced to Tom and myself, and with the usual alacrity of an arbitrary police, the space between apprehension and punishment was very short. We were constantly brought before the master, and as regularly dismissed with his blessing, till we became hardened to blows and to shame. Thus, by the covetousness of this woman, who was the grey mare, and the folly of the master, who, in anything but Greek and Latin, was an ass, my good principles were nearly eradicated from my bosom, and in their place were sown seeds which very shortly produced an abundant harvest. There was a boy at our school lately imported from the West Indies, we nicknamed him Johnny Pagoda. He was remarkable for nothing but ignorance, impudence, great personal strength, and, as we thought, determined resolution. He was about nineteen years of age. 
one day he incurred the displeasure of the master who enraged at his want of comprehension and attention struck him over the head with a knotted cane this appeal although made to the least sensitive part of his frame roused the indolent asiatic from his usual torpid state the weapon in the twinkling of an eye was snatched out of the hand and suspended over the head of the astonished pedagogue who seeing the table so suddenly turned against him made the signal for assistance i clapped my hands shouted bravo lay on johnny go it you have done it now you may as well be hanged for a sheep as a lamb but the ushers began to muster round the boy hung aloof and pagoda uncertain which side the neutrals would take laid down his arms and surrendered at discretion had the east indian followed up his act by the application of a little discipline at the fountainhead it is more than probable that a popular commotion not unlike that of mass Agnello, would have ensued but the time was not to come the indian showed a white feather was laughed at flogged and sent home to his friends who had intended him for the bar but foreseeing that he might in the course of events chance to cut a figure on the wrong side of it sent him to sea where his valour if he had any would find more profitable employment this unsuccessful attempt of the young oriental was the primary cause of all my fame and celebrity in after life i had always hated school and this of all others seemed to me the most hateful the emancipation of johnny pagoda convinced me that my deliverance might be effected in a similar manner the train was laid and a spark set it on fire this spark was supplied by the folly and vanity of a fat french dancing-master mrs higginbottom the master's wife had denounced me to monsieur aristide maugrebleu as a mauvais souillet and as he was a creature of hers he frequently annoyed me to gratify his patroness this fellow was at that time about forty-five years of age and had much more experience than agility having greatly increased his bulk by the roast beef and ale of england while he taught us the rigadoons of his own country his vanity induced him to attempt feats much above the cumbersome weight of his frame i entered the lists with him beat him at his own trade and he beat me with his fiddlestick which broke in two over my head then making one more glorious effort to show that he would not be outdone snapped the tendon achilles and down he fell hors de combat as a dancing master he was taken away in his gig to be cured and i was taken into the schoolroom to be flogged this i thought so unjust that i ran away tom crawford helped me to scale the wall and when he supposed i had gotten far enough to be out of danger from pursuit went and gave information to avoid the suspicion of having aided and abetted after running a mile to use a sea phrase i hove to and began to compose in my mind an oration which i intended to pronounce before my father by way of apology for my sudden and unexpected appearance but i was interrupted by the detested usher and half a dozen of the senior boys among whom was tom crawford coming behind me as i sat on a stile they cut short my meditations by a tap on the shoulder collared and marched me to the right about in double quick time tom crawford was one of those who held me and outdid himself in zealous invective at my base ingratitude in absconding from the best of masters and the most affectionate tender and motherly of all school dames the usher swallowed all this and i soon made him swallow a great deal more we passed near the side of a pond the shoals and depth of which were well known to me i looked at tom out of the corner of my eye and mentioned him to let me go and like a mackerel out of a fisherman's hand i darted into the water 
got up to my middle, and then very coolly, for it was November, turned round to gaze at my escort, who stood at bay, and looked very much like fools. The usher, like a low-bred cur, when he could no longer bully, began to fawn. He entreated, and he implored me to think on my papa and mamma, how miserable they would be if they could but see me, what an increase of punishment I was bringing on myself by such obstinacy. He held out by turns coaxes and threats, in short, everything but an amnesty, to which I considered myself entitled, having been driven to rebellion by the most cruel persecution. Argument having failed, and there being no volunteers to come in and fetch me out of the water, the poor usher, much against his inclination, was compelled to undertake it. With shoes and stockings off, and trousers tucked up, he ventured one foot into the water, then the other. A cold shiver reached his teeth, and made them chatter, but at length, with cautious tread, he advanced towards me. Being once in the water, a step or two further was no object to me, particularly as I knew I could but be well flogged after all, and I was sure of that, at all events, so I determined to have my revenge and amusement. Stepping back, he followed, and suddenly fell head over heels into a hole, as he made a reach at me. I was already out of my depth, and could swim like a duck, and as soon as he came up, I perched my knees on his shoulders and my hands on his head, and sent him souse under a second time, keeping him there until he had drunk more water than any horse that ever came to the pond. I then allowed him to wallow out the best way he could, and as it was very cold I listened to the entreaties of Tom and the boys who stood by, cracking their sides with laughter at the poor usher's helpless misery. Having had my frolic, I came out and voluntarily surrendered myself to my enemies, from whom I received the same mercy in proportion that a Russian does from a Turk. Dripping wet, cold, and covered with mud, I was first shown to the boys as an aggregate of all that was bad in nature. A lecture was read to them on the enormity of my offense, and solemn denunciations of my future destiny closed the discourse. The shivering fit produced by the cold bath was relieved by as sound a flogging as could be inflicted, while two ushers held me, but no effort of theirs could elicit one groan or sob from me. My teeth were clenched in firm determination of revenge. With this passion, my bosom glowed, and my brain was on fire. The punishment, though dreadfully severe, had one good effect. It restored my almost suspended animation, and I strongly recommend the same remedy being applied to all young ladies and gentlemen who, from disappointed love or other such trifling causes, throw themselves into the water. Had the miserable usher been treated after this prescription, he might have escaped a cold and rheumatic fever, which nearly consigned him to a country churchyard, in all probability to reappear at the dissecting room of St. Bartholomew's Hospital. About this time, Johnny Pagoda, who had been two years at sea, came to the school to visit his brother and schoolfellows. I pumped this fellow to tell me all he knew. He never tried to deceive me, or to make a convert. He had seen enough of a midshipman's life to know that a cockpit was not paradise, but he gave me clear and ready answers to all my questions. I discovered that there was no schoolmaster in the ship, and that the midshipmen were allowed a pint of wine a day. A man of war and the gallows, they say, refused nothing. And as I had some strong presentiment from recent occurrences, that if I did not volunteer for the one, I should in all probability be pressed for the other, I chose the lesser evil of the two, and having made up my mind to enter the glorious profession, I shortly after communicated my intention to my parents. From the moment I had come to this determination, I cared not what crime I committed, 
in hopes of being expelled from the school. I wrote scurrilous letters, headed a mutiny, entered into league with the other boys to sink, burn, and destroy, and do all the mischief we could. Tom Crawford had the master's child to dry nurse. He was only two years old. Tom let him fall, not intentionally, but the poor child was a crippled in consequence of it for life. This was an accident which under any other circumstances we should have deplored, but to us it was almost a joke. The cruel treatment I had received from these people had so demoralized me that those passions which under more skillful or kinder treatment had either not been known or would have lain dormant were roused into full and malignant activity. I went to school a good-hearted boy. I left it a savage. The accident with the child occurred two days before the commencement of the vacation, and we were all dismissed on the following day in consequence. On my return home I stated verbally to my father and mother, as I had done before by letter, that I was resolved to go to sea. My mother wept. My father expostulated. I gazed with apathy on the one, and listened with cold indifference to the reasoning and arguments of the other. A choice of schools was offered to me, where I might be a parlor boarder, and I was to finish at the university, if I would but give up my fatal infatuation. Nothing, however, would do. The die was cast, and for the sea I was to prepare. What fool was it who said that the happiest times of our lives is passed at school? There may, indeed, be exceptions, but the remark cannot be generalized. Stormy as has been my life, the most miserable part of it, with very little exception, was passed at school, and my mind never received so much injury from any scenes of vice and excesses in afterlife, as it did from the shameful treatment and bad example I met with there. If my bosom burned with fiend-like passions, whose fault was it? How had that sacred pledge given by the master been redeemed? Was I not sacrificed? to the most sordid avarice in the first instance, and almost flayed alive in the second to gratify revenge? Of the filthy manner in which our food was prepared, I can only say that the bare recollection of it excites nausea. And to this hour, bread and milk, suet pudding, and shoulders of mutton are objects of my deep-rooted aversion. The conduct of the ushers, who were either tyrannical extortioners or partakers in our crimes, the constant loss of our clothes by the dishonesty or carelessness of the servants, the purloining our silver spoons, sheets, and towels while we went away, upon the plea of custom, the charges in the account for windows which I had never broken, and books which I had never received, the shameful difference between the annual cost promised by the master and the sum actually charged, ought to have opened the eyes of my father. I am aware how excellent many of these institutions are, and that there are few so bad as the one I was sent to. The history of my life will prove of what vital importance it is to ascertain the character of the master and mistress as to other points besides teaching Greek and Latin before a child is entrusted to their care. I ought to have observed that during my stay at this school I had made some proficiency in mathematics and algebra. My father had procured for me a berth on board a fine frigate at Plymouth, and the interval between my nomination and joining was spent by my parents in giving advice to me and directions to the several tradesmen respecting my equipment. The large chest, the sword, the cocked hat, the half-boots, were all ordered in succession, and the arrival of each article, either of use or ornament, was anticipated by me with a degree of impatience which can only be compared to that of a ship's company arrived off Denos from a three-year station in India, and who hope to be at anchor at Spithead before sunset. The circumstance of my going to sea, 
affected my father in no other way than it interfered with his domestic comforts by the immoderate grief of my poor mother in any other point of view my choice of profession was a source of no regret to him i had an elder brother who was intended to have the family estates and who was then at oxford receiving an education suitable to his rank in life and also learning how to spend his money like a gentleman younger brothers are in such cases just as well out of the way particularly one of my turbulent disposition a man of war therefore like another piece of timber has its uses my father paid all the bills with great philosophy and made me a liberal allowance for my age the hour of departure drew near my chest had been sent off by the plymouth wagon and a hackney-coach drew up to the door to convey me to the white horse cellar the letting down of the rattling steps completely overthrew the small remains of fortitude which my dearest mother had reserved for our separation and she threw her arms around my neck in a frenzy of grief i beheld her emotions with a countenance as unmoved as the figurehead of a ship while she covered my stoic face with kisses and washed it with her tears i almost wondered what it all meant and wished the scene was over my father helped me out of this dilemma taking me firmly by the arm he led me out of the room my mother sank upon the sofa and hid her face in her pocket-handkerchief i walked as slowly to the coach as common decency would permit my father looked at me as if he would inquire of my very inward soul whether i really did possess human feelings i felt the meaning of this even in my then tender years and such was my sense of propriety that i mustered up a tear for each eye which i hope answered the intended purpose we say at sea when you have no decency sham a little and i verily believe i should have beheld my poor wretched mother in her coffin with less regret than i could have forgone the gay and lovely scenes which i anticipated how amply was this want of feelings towards a tender parent to be recalled to my mind and severely punished in the events of my vagrant life end of chapter one recording by paul clip crack of poland